Hello and welcome to episode 280 of The Crate and Crowbar. It is the 24th of April 2019. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Alex Wiltshire. Hello. 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 Hi. It's been a while since you've been on the pod, Tom, it's I think. It's been a while, I think, oh. actually. Hmm. Uh, when was the last time it was after Sekiro, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah, I think it was. We, now. <laughs> we did miss a week, but then we had obviously all the Sekiro. Yeah. All the Sekiro all the time. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Still good. You finished it now, Chris? I have for now finished it, yeah. Um, and that was an enormously, incredibly gratifying mm. journey. So you go to some beautiful places before that came in. You do. You really do. Um, obviously, uh, I think, obviously people are champing it a bit to hear me slash us bang on about how good that game is. But, <laughs> um, I do, I definitely, having enough finished it, I see what you mean about like maybe the story is not, you know, is the thing that it doesn't have in its corner quite the same way that particularly Bloodborne does. Mm. But at the same time, I still really, really enjoyed it. And, um, I, I ended up getting one of the weirder endings, mm. I think, or fiddlier endings, which made me feel quite good about going back and trying it again. Yeah, it's yeah. been a long time since like the first thing I've done on finishing a game is go like, right, well, new game plus time to go. Cause it's so good. Yeah. What do you mean fiddlier? So it's a from software game, which means that if you interact with certain NPCs at certain times in certain ways and you have the right items and you backtrack in the right ways and solve the right puzzles, you can unlock things and interactions. And, um, was that a guided path you went on or did you, I just happened. Well, I, I figured like some stuff out and like, it's not, I mean, it is all fairly well signposted. It's just the sort Mm. of the timings of things are, Mm. are specific. And, um, when I realized that I was at the end game because I got stuck on the last boss for quite a while and, um, went and sought out help. I don't, I don't like to use wikis and things cause you can very easily see information you don't want. But yeah. as soon as I realized, I just wanted someone to tell me like, am, am I going mad? Like, or is, you know, this is the last boss. It is very, very hard. And, um, uh, a member of our Discord community actually pointed out to me that, you know, yes, that is the end, but there are things you can go and do. Mm. So that, and that, not necessarily what, but it encouraged me to go explore. And so I spent like another couple of days just like rinsing out the game. And then having now finished it, I went back and looked at the wikis and looked at the lists of bosses and realized, oh, I did do everything. Mm. So that's kind of nice to know because it yeah. means that it's really fun to go back. But I feel like I've, and, and the ending I happened to get was one of the ones that's more conditional on a bunch of other things happening, mm. which basically happened because I did everything, if that made sense. Like I moved and I hadn't missed certain windows. So ended up moving everything along to the right cool. end state. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so, um, obviously no spoilers, but, that was a really satisfying experience because it feels like, and I hadn't, I don't think I've had this experience with the Souls game or Bloodborne of a really, a feeling like I've seen everything in it. So if I play it again, it's just for, for fun and, and because I love the combat system and things. Mm. Whereas with Souls, I always came away from like a given, you know, run through it as feeling like, well, I didn't do this and this is the play style I could have adopted and I mm. could have done this. Whereas I quite appreciate how much more honed Sekiro is. Yeah, the, the comparison results is interesting because, um, an upcoming issue of Peace Game, we've got like a big multi-page retrospective on Dark Souls and why it was so special. And as part of that, I wrote just a spread on Knight Artorias and Sif. Mm. And I realized just the depth of that one thread in that game, like you could write pages and pages about it. Cause like the, the, the ramifications of their relationship and what it means for you and your mission, uh, in that game. Uh, and just the kind of, uh, the tragedy of it and the way that story is presented to the souls. And that was just like, just two characters. 
And yeah. you could say the same for Gwendolyn. You could say the same for Gwyn in Dark Souls. You could say the same for so, so many characters in that game. Like, it's such a beautiful tapestry of stories. Mm. And I don't think Sekiro is that, actually. I think it's got some of that. It's got I- some of it, for sure. So I think the Ashida clan is awesome. The Lady Butterfly and the Wolf and that, all that stuff is really interesting. Um, but it's not as rich and like, yeah. it doesn't feel as rich and just, I, I won't be thinking about it in two years time. Whereas I still have, I still do think about Dark Souls. I still think about Bloodborne because they do have these, uh, beautifully entwined stories and uh, points of ambiguity that I just, I find endlessly fascinating. Do you think the Sekiro is going out to attempt to do that or is it actually trying to be more honed and more directed? It's a good question because like it's, it, it tells its story much more clearly as its central story at least, but it's still, hard to put together compared to most other games that you still have to do detective work to figure out yeah. what's happened to each clan um what's happened to each kind of group that's attempting to capture this immortality uh and there are quietly interesting characters and from software games are brilliant at having off-screen characters that you never see but are nonetheless really influential and in in Sekiro it's Tomo this mm. uh, mysterious warrior called Tomo is I, I won't talk about it too much because the game's not been out very long uh, but if there's going to be DLC for Sekiro I imagine it'll be focused on her and her kind of plan yeah um, and in Dark Souls it was Artorias and they eventually told that story and in Bloodborne it, it was the mystery of eventually uncovering the DLC at the very end, like the origin point of the entire state of the universe is revealed in that DLC. Um, and it's, it, I just feel like there's more of that good juicy stuff in Dark Souls and there's more of that juicy stuff in Bloodborne yeah. than necessarily is in Sekiro. There's some cool stuff in Sekiro, like you can figure out the history of characters and who knows who yes. through item descriptions, through upgrades and things like and that. feeding like, boost to people. <laughs> it, yeah, feeding boost to people. It feels like, um, from a storytelling point of view, it feels like, I think this is true of Sekiro a lot, a lot of the time. It feels like a more manageable set of things. Mm. Like in addition to like the main clans, it is also kind of a story about like one generation of ninjas, basically mm. like one graduating class from Ninja Academy, like, you know, the same, you know, and, and I can't really talk more, much more about it without spoilers, but yeah. you find out if you go, well, you don't find out if you go digging, you can figure out how characters knew each other. Mm. And when, you know, in almost no point in Sekiro, if someone tells you a story and you give them sake and they say, I once met someone who thought this, that is someone in the game. Like there's, you know, no one ever refers to like, it's like the entire, it's like a soap opera, like the entire unit or every character that matters is probably somewhere in the game. Yeah. Maybe with the exception of Tomo, yeah. which is a good point. But like, you know what I mean? It's like you can start to draw the lines between characters and realize who used to be allies with who and who is no longer and who betrayed who. Mm. And, you know, why has everyone gone to sulk in their opposite corners of the castle? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, and, uh, and, you know, that I find, uh, very, uh, effective partly, I think, because I think you can get a proper measure of it in one run, which you can't do in Dark Souls. That's definitely so. true. Yeah. Which is the great disadvantage of the Dark Souls story, storytelling technique, where I, I, in many ways it's incredibly economical because it cuts down the amount of cutscenes you have to watch. It, it keeps you in the game all the time and doesn't often stop stop you to have a conversation you don't want to have but it does mean that when you first encounter a boss you don't necessarily understand anything about it because you haven't assembled all the bits of knowledge and you probably haven't discovered the items required to do that uh so you're kind of your first playthrough of a dark of a dark souls or bloodborne is just full of, you you should be baffled for most of it yeah, <laughs> because right. you just don't have the you don't have the plot pieces to understand what you're fighting and why um and that can trans that can feel 
like quite aimless in a way that mm. the challenge is very direct and very uh, the, the challenge of those bosses is really exciting but the, you don't necessarily get the narrative push until the second or third playthrough and i'm not sure, not sure it's necessarily a bad thing but it's something that Sekiro definitely corrects i don't know if it's trying to correct that or if it's just doesn't have too yeah. many ideas but i think it's sort of worthy as a experiment as well mm. like as a sort of optional kind of way into that thing it feels more cinematic in some ways than the, uh, the souls games do it looks amazing doesn't it yeah good it's, it's, it's brilliant brilliant game man just a just let me uh, all i used to think all games basically had to end in space <laughs> like in the old sort of 90s era of like platformers where like every final boss you fight them on the ground and then maybe the sky and then in space and this applies to jrpgs as well mm. right like if you don't fight the big villain on a floating asteroid <laughs> or something or a hunk of rock hasn't truly finished in the cosmos it hasn't really ended yet but now i think all games should end in just like a very blowy field <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> As the weather gets steadily worse. <laughs> so, uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 got this very right. Yeah. A lot yeah. of other games. Like the final boss fight in MGS3 is, yeah. is a direct influence on lots of final Flat boss fields. Yeah. yeah. You know, Bad weather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I also really appreciated that Sekiro right at the end in its final two bosses gives you like full Dark Souls on one side and full Sekiro on the other. Oh, which so is the secret one and the... The secret one yeah, and, and yeah. the actual end boss. It's really like, true. One of them is pure Sekiro and the other one is pure jumping and hitting things in the ass yes yeah <laughs> so i beat the bull as well yeah yeah just run around hit it in the ass <laughs> i played this old game before <laughs> i got this yeah <laughs> yeah uh good um we've uh, managed to talk about sekiro and dark souls within the first uh 10 minutes of this podcast mm. which means we don't need to mention them for at least another five minutes okay <laughs> um I, and i appreciate i just realized that the game i've been playing this week heavily involves uh, like samurai and mm. quick reactions so i shouldn't go next <laughs> alex you've, you've been playing something that doesn't involve samurai or fast uh, reactions or, uh, yeah uh, well, there might be samurai in it somewhere but certainly not quite fast reactions i've been playing um ascension the deck building game mm, uh, yeah i was gonna i've been wondering because it's old 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 game mm. um the reason i've been by I've, I've been playing it is that a very 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 long time ago according to ios i bought it in 2013 or something damn maybe, oh, maybe 14 did, i don't know did owen hill make you buy it no no this was this was <laughs> self-propelled it, it might have been him well this is on ios and um but i haven't had an ipad until um a couple of weeks ago hmm. and so it's been unplayable on because it's all tiny little car text and it's just horrible and i never the 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 tutorial is okay but I just never got past the tutorial and just couldn't understand what the fuck was going on. Um, but with a new iPad uh, that I just wanted to use, um, I finally committed to playing it. And fucking hell, I love it. It's good, isn't it? It's really good, mm. really good. Um, good. I don't really know. It's not a game that's kind of hit as kind of, uh, you know, it, it's not as mainstream. Like Magic the Gathering and stuff like that is yeah. kind of so much more visible. And I don't really know what its relationship with those <laughs> games is. So, yeah, like, I haven't played Ascension properly in a long time. I used to play it loads on my old, old iPhone. Right, right, right. Like, probably 2011, 2012 yeah, kind yeah. of time. Um, but what separates it from Magic or something is it's much more of a sort of um, deck building yeah. collection game rather so this than is, a yeah, it's a game, playing game. Like, Slay the Spire developers have said that it's a strong... Um, uh inspiration for them and i can completely see that because mm. you build your hand over the course of the game um which makes means that you're constantly making decisions over the cards that you pick up yeah um and that is really nice because i don't like deck building 
as a thing to do outside of the game because I just am lazy and can't be fucked to go through all of the cards and and imagine how they might be used together and then test them and then oh well, that doesn't work and go back. I like the the doing it on the fly and realizing as I go along thing. I just find that so much more yeah. um involving and exciting and interesting. Mm. Um so this is uh I'll try and describe it really succinctly and not boringly, but it's a little bit fiddly and weird so I'll, I'll, i might fail here but um in this game there are two currencies there's fighty currency and there is uh buying currency or like sort of money money yeah <laughs> uh money currency uh fighty currency will defeat uh monsters and money currency will buy you heroes and constructs um and th- uh, the end of the game the player with the most Honor wins and honor you earn from fighting monsters, but then also lots of the different cards will also grant you, uh, honor for, for certain circumstances in certain circumstances. Um, the cards that you're choosing from are dealt into the middle of the board of the, of the table. Um, you're playing against another player and you're both able to select on your turn cards from that central thing. The cards will cost different amounts of fight or money depending on what they are um and these cards once they're in your hand uh in fact monsters uh, are actually sent into the void into a discard pile so they don't actually go into your hand but once they're in your hand and you're dealt five of them at the start of your turn uh they will grant you different amounts of fighty things and money things so uh it ha- what that really amounts to the important thing about that is that oh it's really good dopamine fit like it's just yeah right every hand is a dopamine wash of delight as you kind of one hope for a certain card that you've selected in the past and you hope that that's going to come up um and you hope that and the card design is really interesting to create these little machines of kind of you play this card and then in this particular order and that means that you can max the amount of money that you can get because this leads to that and then you get a new card and then you get that card leads to this and and it's just sort of like sometimes you're you can go through a a turn and just more and more cards going up and you're buying more and more stuff as you're going along and it just feels so good and but mostly you know there's a lot of luck in there because depending on what cards come up in the middle and what and the order in which cards come up in your hand as mm. it tells up like you know it can feel when you when i started playing it definitely felt very loose and i've tried i've talked um francis into to um to to playing this mm. and he i think he's a little suspicious of it at the moment it, I, I don't think i've quite kind of kind of i don't think he's had a great experience with it yet but I got over this hump of the random feeling of it. Like, you know, yeah. now I've like, oh, I'm in control now. Mostly because of these things called constructs. The Basically, the relationships with cards are quite subtle. Like, they don't feel very substantial when you read the, them. But once mm. you see them in action, like, you know, there are, there's a set of cards called um, con, uh, uh, Meccana. And they do things like, one of them is very expensive. And it says... Treat all construct cards as Makana. Now, construct cards are cards that when you play them from your hand, um, you, they, they sit then permanently or semi-permanently. Other players can, can cancel them out, but they sit, uh, and provide a constant effect every, for every turn. And, uh, Makana have these very subtle effects where if you get enough of these, their constructs in play at once, 
you get these chains of effects coming on where you're suddenly able just to buy shitloads of cards and like, oh my God, I didn't realize this might happen, but I've having these and you're just like gathering them all up and it feels great. Um, uh, that has loads of expansions, um, out, maybe six or seven different expansions. Loads of them now. There's one that only came out like mid last year as well. Wow. And, um, and they all introduced these mental new rules. <laughs> or they feel like, what the hell have they done with the rules? Mm. And like, and learning those, you just feel like you don't know the game at all because it's a completely fresh set of cards. Some of which are actually sort of similar effects to others, but there are these extra sort of mechanics working on top where you're collecting, you're kind of dominating and, uh, temples, which will affect, like, give you permanent effects of your stuff or, like, fate cards where when they, they're dealt into the middle hand from the, the mate, like, the shared pile, uh, like, suddenly an effect is suddenly given to both players and, like, oh, we're able to discard and, like, all sorts of things are going off and firing off as a result of each other. Um, so it feels really mechanical, like like you're in control of a machine, which I think is the best feeling when you're playing something like Save the Spire, mm. like where things are happening as a result of decisions you made in the past with a nice dose of chance to really fucking get the dopamine glands pumping. <laughs> <laughs> I like the theme as well. Like the, the, the sort of, um, you know, not... It, it, I played variants on this that you can take on different things, particularly when your goal is to actually acquire resources and things. I can't remember what it was called. There's a, there's like an Arctic survival exploration, uh, not variant on Ascension necessarily, but on the same sort of idea. Yeah. But Ascension's got this sort of weird, like tarot deck, it's a high fantasy yeah. tarot deck thing where it yeah. does mm-hmm. feel like, I sort of like that about card games where, you know, you can feel like you're kind of playing with sort of, sort of magical elements or, or sort of a grammar of, kind of sorcery whereas yeah, like, like a lot it of helps that the art is all very distinctively yeah. one artist so it's got, and it's got this sort of woodcut effect and everything's a bit kind of like eyes are too big and kind of a bit off center and like it has a very woodcutty feel it's a little john blanchy i don't okay i don't know long john blanch yeah for warhammer artists right, of right. old do a lot of the more grotesque kind of sort of drippingly baroque yeah. kind of warhammer stuff it's not quite that but it's like if you know obviously but it's got a similar sort of ugly compelling fantasy vibe but far more new agey i would say yeah yeah it's definitely a lot of new age going on yeah it's like yeah it's it's got a sort of late led zeppelin album cover feel (laughs) it's very like but i love that stuff you know the story stuff is quite interesting as well like in the first like the original release like i think there's like there's some devil fallen angel guy that's kind of called samuel or something yeah who's going to destroy the world or something and you've got a basically a massive load of heroes that are going to take him down and samuel is one of the cards he's a monster it's samuel, card, right? Not samuel samuel <laughs> samuel yeah samuel <laughs> and like he's just one of the very expensive monster card and like midway through the game it's likely you're, you're going to be able to have, have built a hand that can take him down hmm. and um and that's really nice and and the and there are story elements to the expansions which kind of just continue the the saga of whatever the weird yeah, right. fantasy bullshit that's going on but it means that the cards are embodied like they embody this like so there's like uh oh i got um sam samuel 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 <laughs> Sam Badley. Uh, uh, he's like the, oh, I can't remember that there's a certain phrase of his, like as if he's been reborn, but there's yeah. another bad dude that's turned up as well. And that's like, it's just quite cute, really. It's really enjoyed that. Um, yeah. And like, it's, it's just, um, 
is good and very, very, very overly So compelling. you're playing on iPad. I'm playing on iPad and the PC version is identical. Like yeah. it's just completely oh, identical. I get it again. And if you buy the PC version, it comes with a bunch of the expansions, mm. like automatically. Is it a paid for thing still? Yeah, it's like seven quid, but yeah. that's with, like it works out way cheaper than iOS. Oh man, I... Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm back in. I just, you made me want to play Ascension again. And it used to be my go-to on trains. Yeah. 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 Did you yeah. played Ascension, Tom? Yeah, I played loads of it. It's, um, I've got the expansions for it on my iPad. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's initially terrifying to look at. I yeah, it's kind of like, oh my what? god. What the it's because there are so many reservoirs of, of resources and places to draw cards from and bin cards. Yeah, into. yeah the void. The, the void is just a place where you can drag a card to make it vanish forever. <laughs> and, um, and, th- and that's super useful. It's like, say, the spire where trimming your deck is as useful as acquiring yeah. cards. Yeah. Um, I wish mentioned that, like, the, the, the aim of the game is to amass a certain number of sort of power points. I can't remember what they're called. Their honor. Yeah. Honor. That's it. And, uh, but every card you acquire has an honor value inherent. So, uh, there's this hidden thing in the, uh, you're not quite sure exactly how much honor your opponent has because they're acquiring cards all the time and amassing honor as part of the deck. The deck itself is capable of winning you the game. Um, but you, you can also just build a deck that kills stuff and you just get honor, instant honor for killing stuff as well. Yeah. So there's and that's all these, public as well. So yeah, you can see you can the see earned that honor, but not the, but not the, the accrued the, the deck. honor. Uh, yeah. And so you, 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 you wonder what your opponent's going to, going for like there's loads of interesting trade-offs throughout the resource system in ascension like that yeah um and but yeah initially it looks terrifying it's worth it's worth just getting to well part of it part of learning how to play this particular vision of it like not you know the this the digital version is learning the ways it tells you what's going on because Mm. when during an opponent's turn like I've only been playing against AI because, like, I couldn't find a room that worked properly on on iOS, like an online room. But anyway, the um, uh, it it shows you the cards kind of that the, the other player is choosing, and it like holds them for a moment. But some, but also it shows you the cards they're they're sending to the void, and it takes a while for it to click, like what the difference is and what you should be paying yeah. attention to, yeah, and what it's really in. Like there are those little sound effects that use bell sounds and like certain sounds that sort of. And then there's the. Have you come across the sordid, sordid, sordid asp? <laughs> I, I, the, 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 you, the name rings a bell. It's like this is this is in one of the expansions. Uh, it is. It's just called the Sorted Sorted Asp, and there are quite a few in the um in the deck. And it's a really cheap card. It's only a three three like three value monster, hmm. and they come along quite a lot. And it has this incredibly distinctive. <laughs> whenever you kill it and like i was playing it all weekend at my mom and dad's and like i had the the volume on minimum but it was not enough <laughs> people to say what are you what are you doing what are you doing strangling an asp mum i don't want, again alex i don't want to watch um uh, antiques road show i want to play with my sordid asps <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> when, when he says sordid asp, I don't know if I've played with the expansion that that's in. I did sort of imagine like a kind of carry on asp, <laughs> like a sort of, like a, ooh, snake. <laughs> and actually the sound you made is not miles on flat. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine uh, what it's like on PC because I'm so used to just, it's very tactile. You yeah, move yeah. cards around by dragging them around. Yeah, the I tried to do iPad. that on PC, but actually you, you kind of just click on the, just click on stuff. Yeah. It's a lot less probably, effort. It's probably better, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's very, I've got a, a new laptop with a touch screen so I can just whore nice. at that. There yeah. 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 Yeah.
Ah, oh, yes. Exciting. Good yeah. card so games. I've been, I'm yesterday. right up to the minute with yeah. this ancient game. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, what minute are you up to? Uh, I'm, I've also been playing on iPad this week. Uh, though this series of games is also on PC and it's the Room series. I recently finished the Room Old Sins, which is the fourth one. <laughs> Old Sins. Old Sins. Old Sins of the Sordid Asp. And this, uh, the <laughs> Thanks for the episode title, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> the Room is a game about, uh, poking boxes and watching magical things happen. And it's a puzzle game. <laughs> Not all games, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that more games were like this. Um, it, it's basically, it's about beautiful, impossible puzzle boxes that you kind of, you stroke and plug things into to, and then watch them unfurl into new puzzle configurations that you then poke at uh, and it's i'm not sure what it's like on pcs i think it's going to lose something for not having that tactile touchscreen thing because you're literally sliding nuts and bolts uh around Damn. and like pulling <laughs> just stroke, stroking to pull out little drawers and then tapping to pick up a key and then tapping to put the key into another thing and then twisting it with, with your finger to make it go around and hear this delicious click and then it opens up like a, a tulip and a, a, a new wow <laughs> and then a, a beautiful we'll open the window a uh, new puzzle castle will emerge from the center of it and then you plug things into that and click on it and stroke it until it again <laughs> and for, I don't, I, I, it's, this is like the inverse and equal opposite to you describing slay the spire yeah <laughs> this is less intentional uh, but for for a game to uh so Sometimes we have, we have these discussions about, you know, violence in games and why violence is so satisfying and why it's just the default thing that, you know, developers often go to as a concept because the win state is obvious and the actual moment of victory is so clear. I, 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 I'd put, push the room series forward as an, an alternative to violence of a, a series that creates an almost equally satisfying sense from just opening a drawer or, mm. Uh, or solving a, a puzzle gently and watching something respond to your actions. Yeah. Uh, and there's something so, I, I just wish these beautiful puzzle boss boxes existed in real life. And I think it taps into the part of my brain that loves miniatures as well. Yeah. Because yeah. they're all these tiny, just beautiful, intricate things, uh, that I wish existed, but could never exist. Cause there's they're a lot of lovely brass and knurled mahogany, wasn't it? Yeah. And just kind of, it, just like uh, something you'd find in a abandoned Victorian mansion. Uh, but then there's this also kind of sinister undertone to it and there's there's actually a story to it then you're messing with dark forces and you start wondering who built all this and for what purpose and and there is actually throughout all four games an ongoing narrative to it uh, that is just gently there in the background and and it makes the moments of occasional just genuine creepiness where uh, you'll be looking through old photographs and then you've got like a magic lens you can look at things through and there'll just be like a figure in the background a sort of misshapen figure and you won't know what that is and it'll be the key to solving the puzzle but it's never explained explicitly it's just like some sort of darkly horrifying thing that's happened in this place and left its mark uh, and there's an uh, it's a quietly a horror game as well which uh, which is brilliant uh, and it's, it's such a peaceful satisfying series that i felt like it did it'll never get the kind of column inches or the press that a bigger game will because yeah. it's aims are so gentle but the, the the pleasure and the fantasy it wants to simulate is just so pure it's, it's just, really universal as well because my mum really likes that series my and she's not well. interested in games yeah really and and she's been playing with my daughter and they both like my daughter is like very fiddling like loves to fiddle around with everything and mm. like this is perfect that's perfect, perfect like yeah. you know it's just sort of ultimate fiddle fiddly game it is yeah uh they've uh i was wondering if they were making a new one and i mean presumably they are because they've done incredibly well uh but they're uh fireproof games i think they're called who yeah. make them and um, they they put out like a twitter poll asking 
their followers for uh which was their favorite game and everyone said the third one was uh, and that was actually much more open environments there were multiple endings to it and stuff like that oh, right. so that might be a sign of the way it's going in the future but i do actually really like old sins because it's just one dollhouse that you zoom into rooms of uh, oh cool and then you, you you might solve a puzzle in one room and then pick something up that will then you plug into a different room and they're all themed around this you know old family house it's it's like a folly but rendered in beautiful tiny miniature form and just going into different, you know, smaller and smaller, smaller layers of reality, uh, as you kind of, there's a really nice magical feeling to it. Cause I always quite like the, the idea of there being one box, I, like, I like you know, too, and sort yeah. of delving, you know, um, how, you know, sort of, uh, you could never believe that this would be inside that mm. after having caressed that particular <laughs> thing round. <and> yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> but yeah, if you want to, uh, zoom recursively into a living room forever, uh, solving ever more complex puzzles by stroking things than the room. The old sense is an absolutely beautiful, wonderful game. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant series and uh, everyone should enjoy it. Ideally on iPad, I think, where the tactile elements are well realized in this touch screen. Have you played this anyone? Have you, have you played on PC? I haven't played on at all. Yeah. No, I've not played I haven't on PC. played on PC. Because it's got some of the, the qualities from, from, I think Pip might have played it, but like, it's got, it, it makes me think of the, what the qualities are of, um, hidden object games and things mm. like that as well yeah. which are also about that Pip wrote a really uh, awesome piece for a gamer about why, uh, I think it's just called why I love hidden object games and it was um, a genre I've been previously quite dismissive of and then reading that I suddenly realised that actually I love this in games all the time what these games do is is simple but very very deeply satisfying in a way that i like I, i'm definitely gonna download lo- loads of those games now on my ipad yeah. uh what now the room's done yeah uh and and enjoy that it's something quite just the simple pleasure of finding things and plugging one thing into another because uh, the room is, is never hard like the puzzles aren't difficult they're just memory puzzles it's just like oh do you remember this shape from this other room now you picked up a plug that is that shape and that's pretty much as hard as it gets really mm. um but th- I wouldn't want it to be any harder because part of it is this kind of lovely frictionless feeling of solving stuff until the mystery's over. Um, and yeah, I think it's some of those hidden object games definitely do that as well. That mm. sounds a bit. A lot of it's basically tidying. Mm. You're sort of just sort of, and I think maybe that's why it's satisfying is a lot of those puzzle games is, as you say, it's putting things back. Mm. It's finding things that don't belong in an environment or this key actually goes here and unlocking the next interaction not the real tidying of all like your kitchen refolding out and revealing into aspect of itself <laughs> or something but has some of that satisfaction of just resolving something mm. and watching the pattern kind of come together yeah and the, uh, it's the very 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 simple thing of hearing a button go click and <laughs> worrying mechanisms and then seeing something happen it is i think that's just an inherently pleasurable thing yeah, you got humans. it right <laughs> click yeah, yeah yeah it's just uh, yeah it's it, mechanisms doing mechanism things is uh, a sort of art yeah uh, and i love that yeah like a like a cuckoo clock kind of feeling mm, right yeah. yeah or like an old watch that you have to wind and it's got its gears visible and you just watch look at that endlessly and the act of winding it involves you in that in a way that is just deeply satisfying even mm. though you're not responsible for designing designing or executing it mm. yeah love yeah that. that's really interesting but it kind of speaks a little bit, I suppose, to how like touchscreens brought back like sort of tactile design for interfaces and things because mm. people just don't like, don't like it if it's purely digital or, or you know, sort of, um, reveals the reality of like a microchip, basically <laughs> this powery things. You kind of want to see the things move. Mm. How often do you get frustrated with the way that it translates a certain movement in 3D space in the game to 
the touchscreen because my experience is sometimes like, oh, I can't get this thing to move because I don't quite understand the movement I need. It's, a, it's very occasional. There's certain things with like camera perspective. So when you're zoomed in on an object, you will rotate a camera by um, striking against the grain almost to spin it around. But then if you're just looking around a place, it would be one-to-one. Your finger moves left and your vision moves left. And I think there's there's something quite jarring about the way that it shifts between those perspective controls, depending mm-hmm. on what you're looking at. I mean, sometimes you're not quite sure whether you're f- focused on an object to spin around it or not. Uh, and other things are like rotation along uh, a plane, like an ambiguous plane. So if you're at a tilted angle to like a key, like it's fine if the key is directly you're looking at the back of the key as it's going into the device and you just spin around it with your finger. But if it's at an angle, you're not quite sure what shape to trace to get that key to turn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but normally the game is very good at kind of giving you the the viewing points that you need to understand what what a mechanism is supposed to do. Um, there's a, And there's a really, really nice puzzle in The Old Sins where it's like a, a series of pivoting, spinning uh, blades and there are circular points attach these blades that you can move up and down the blades but when you spin them all they trace out organic shapes mm. in light and it's absolutely delicious <laughs> it's just oh that was nice <laughs> uh it was a very nice puzzle just 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 something in a sensory perspective just delicious to solve and, and look at and ah oh, man the series is constantly like that but yeah you're right there are occasional moments like that for sure uh and occasionally it's a bit too much of a memory puzzle if you've come back to the game after a week or something, you don't necessarily remember that, oh, there's an acorn-shaped thing in that room. Uh, but there's a good hint system where there, there's a three-stage hint at any given point that unlock over time that you can tap the corner of the screen to see. Uh, so they've thought of, they've, they've really honed it. I think it's very, very good. And I really want them to just make one of these every two years for the rest of my life, and I will always play them. <laughs> it's, it's just a guaranteed source of joy to me, the, the, the Room series. Mm. And that's a, new, a nice thing to have, isn't it? Awesome. Yeah. What is You gave a hint as to what you've been playing. I did, yeah. So I have um, obviously left behind uh, hitting people with the katana, take up hitting people with the katana in Katana Zero, uh, which is a... It doesn't have any katanas in it. Yeah, katanas, uh, colon, zero. <laughs> uh, gun, lot, no. Um it is zero. It is, uh, in fact, one katana. I would say is the more correct title <laughs> for the game. Um, it is a two D side scrolling sort of action platformer uh, with uh, a, a combat system, uh, uh, very combat heavy um, and very narrative heavy. Um, if I was to describe it quickly, I would say it's a cross between Hotline Miami, Stealth Bastard, which is a bit of a deep cut, maybe. Hmm. And, um, with elements of a character action game, pick your character action game, mm. probably, you know, um, so it's a cyberpunk kind of world ish, like sort of cyberpunky, sort of, um, uh, more modern, like not very far future cyberpunk. In fact, I think I maybe, maybe mostly get the cyberpunk thing simply from there's a lot of neon in it really it's got it's the shinobi thing presumably it's going for yeah i think it's the street samurai thing like Mm. actually you are kind of like a street samurai and there's not there are there are a few things in it but there's not loads in it that puts it in a sort of futuristic sense there are some sort of sci-fi elements but like it's got a very sort of 80s sort of neon uh look and soundtrack 
a lot of like VHS effects and things when you pause and during certain like um, color separation and those kinds of effects. Mm. So I would put it in somewhat the same wheelhouse as Hotline Miami. Um, and um, I, I find it really interesting so far. I saw people also raving about it, and I think it's it's and it seems to have done well on Steam, and I think it's it's, it's earned that. Um, the way it basically works is you are a samurai um, who is on a series of very highly murderous kind of missions. This is the structurally quite similar to Hotline Miami in the sense that you even go back to your apartment between these missions and receive your your next target in in specific circumstances. But I'll get more into that because it's quite deep narratively. Um, when you're actually in a mission, it's kind of stage by stage in a particular location. So the idea is you can see uh, you have a weird relationship with time. And this is something that's addressed in the story. But uh, when you're actually playing the game, you are never actually um, in danger because your character has this ability to see the future, which means that what your job is, is to determine a course of action that will get you through the environment. Mm. And then once you've successfully done it once, you see effectively a replay, but it's actually the, the time it really happened of the character then doing that. So the idea is, you know, use your precognitive ability to determine a perfect way through like a combat challenge. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an aesthetic thing, but it's, you know, it's kind of a cool conceit. Like you, you don't ever really die because, you know, uh, cause it's just future dying. It's just like, well, well, it's like in this, in this timeline, <coughs> I died. So I'll go back and I'll try it a different way. Yeah. Um, you can sort of run and jump sort of the sort of wall jumping stuff you'd expect a very quick katana slash attack. Um, the ability to pick up and throw objects, which again, very hot like Miami, um, pot plants, knives and, and stuff. Uh, no other weapons, but you can deflect bullets if you back at, back at people, if you hit them in the air. Um, and you have a dash roll with a big invincibility frame in it, which is used for various things. Mm. Um, and on, you have a, a recharging ability to slow time. And it's really stylishly presented and, um, the task is basically just get through the level with this toolkit and there's some puzzle stuff. There are ways of like, uh, there's a sort of light stealth system. So enemies kind of can't hear in certain circumstances and kind of can't see smoke bombs and, and stuff like that. <coughs> if you die, you have to redo the stage that you're currently on from the beginning. So it's, it's, um, that can feel quite punishing because like, because you have all this time stuff, like and when you die, you see yourself rewind back to the start of the level. It sometimes feels like if a kinder version of this game, because it does get hard, would have you um, rewind Prince of Persia style, like immediately after you screw up and then try the thing you screwed up on again. Mm. But it's not how, really... How long might that be? The, how far is the start So it's never like loads, but like I think when you... Because when you actually eventually do it, normally it'll take you like 30 seconds to a minute to clear the stage. But obviously there's a lot of trial and error and oh, you take one hit from anything and you're dead. There's no health bar. You, you just, you're dead if you take a, a single hit. So the thing the game wants from you is to demonstrate that you can do the level perfectly. And that means that it can be a little frustrating at times to be, to, to fail right at the end of a level and just want to redo the bit you failed and have to redo again, perfectly redo everything else. It's never mega long. Um, and I've made progress through it at a fair clip. I don't think it's especially long game, but, um, it's uh it can be frustrating i think to to be sent back to the to the beginning to do stuff you've already done particularly because sometimes there's a puzzle element or like a timed element in the level that you're kind of in sync with so you can't necessarily skip ahead mm. too far um and so that's a big part of it but the other really big part of it is um 
Uh, so as I say, the presentation's really lovely, like loads of lovely like, incidental animations. So each level has a soundtrack. The soundtrack's pretty good, but you even see the character put earbuds in at the start of the level, and then the name of this track comes up like on their like uh, like uh, like LCD MP3 player screen. That's cool. Like it's just little sort of. Hmm like little details like that they're really nice but it's also really narrative heavy and i think choice led like i'm on my first playthrough uh, and i know i've made choices that have affected things so it's been interesting to sort of figure out how that works because uh you have dialogue and dialogue options that occur throughout missions it has a system where when you first get given once when someone starts talking to you um you uh, a bar starts to fill up underneath there it's it's all text um and actually its presentation of uh dialogue through text is really good like it's things are sort of like typed in front of you in 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 the cadence that the character is saying them and occasionally it will use sound effects fonts color or animation to indicate the tone of voice even though there's no voice acting so someone shouting at you might have like a like a glass breaking sound behind every word like yeah. smash 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 as the words appear and it's really it's really really cool like mm. it effectively like it gives tone like color changes and things like that like at one point a character is sarcastic to you and you can tell this partly because of the way it's written but also because the words appear in like a a rainbow of colors that wave up and down as they said <laughs> like no we're not quite but it's like it's the, it's the visual equivalent of yeah. a wah, wah, wah. and it's like that's what's really cool anyway when someone starts talking a bar fills up um and the first, some portion of the bar, and it varies from moment to moment, will be red. Mm. And if you press, a, and then you're given, at that point, given one dialogue option, uh, which will also be highlighted in red, and it'll basically be shut up. And this is like the skip dialogue <laughs> option, but it is an option. Mm. Rather than like skipping ahead through the dialogue, if you hammer A or whatever to keep going, your character will immediately say, shut the fuck up. Or like, tell me what I need to know, or whatever. Mm. But that has quite severe consequences, because if you wait until it leaves the red element, you'll get more options. So the longer you wait, the more options you get in some cases. It's a bit punishing to people who don't want to, I suppose. Well, it's, it's, it is a story game. Like, yeah. and that's the thing is like, it's not load up a mission and do it. Like, in fact, it's save system. Um, sometimes we'll put you back towards uh, behind all the cutscenes at the start of a level. You make choices in pretty much every level about what you're going to do. It's a branching story tied to a kind of hotline Miami style hmm. sort of action game. And, um, which, you know, it feels like something that you maybe play through a couple of times, but the purpose of it really is the story, not the combat system. Hmm. Um, which is, it's, it feels like actually it has some similarities with Hot Miami 2, which I hated. And, but it does a lot of its same, the same stuff far more successfully. Um, it has some really cool, like, it, it uses the, the UI and the presentation. It's, it's, you know, every aspect of it is played with in order to tell you the story basically um you hang out in your apartment and you go to sleep and you have dreams and things and that those dreams change and shift based on what you think is happening that you then tell another character and and obviously want to give spoilers away but it's really kind of stylishly done and it seems to let you make choices that are quite significant although i don't know because i'm still playing through it the only thing you know the story is about like you know uh it's not, but well, it doesn't really open up what it's about. It's got this sort of like, you know, it's a pretty grim world and it's, you know, you are killing a lot of people in that world and it's sort of, and you don't really know why. And it, it plays with that in, in interesting ways because of your relationship with time. Hmm. Um, the only thing I would say about it is it has 
I think, a nasty streak that I'm a bit tired of. Um, it does the, you know, similar to um, uh, Hotline Miami, it has a little bit of that sort of video nasty um, sort of uh, like kind of grindhouse feel to its story. Um, you know, you, you, you fight through like, you know, warehouses and uh, a prison and, and stuff, but also like a movie set, which has a lot of that kind of like, um, yeah, sort of exploitation cinema kind of feel to it. It's not, it doesn't do anything that I think is as egregious as the, uh, rape scene at the start of Hotline Miami 2 that everyone hated because it was pointless. Mm. Um, but it, it gets a little bit closer than I think it needs to. So like consider this like, functionally a content warning like it's quite grim in places like there are characters that are just really nasty and you know it's sort of it's not necessarily pleasant in those moments and i i was a bit disappointed because it actually has some quite elegant storytelling in it and some really nice little moments and some nice character interactions and things like that yeah and it seems to give you meaningful freedom to determine how you feel about stuff even in those nasty moments which is good like you are not locked into being a murderous nihilist but you can choose to be one if you want Mm. But I still sort of, my issue with it is not necessarily that, that violence or threat of violence is a, something that games can't do. It's that it's been done so much. Like one of the characters is a sort of, you get the impression like a Russian mobster who brutalizes people, he tortures people, brutalizes women. And it's like, I've just seen that character in so many cyberpunk books and movies and games like this now that i'm not really interested and when you first introduce that character it's in kind of a mystery you know well what's their deal and then the the more i found out about what their deal was the less interested i became because it's you'll be going out to kill him at some point well you know and it goes to those places and you know but actually you know the but then there's there's presentation stuff in it that's like consistently really genuinely surprising which is really really cool like i don't know if did you either of you finish hotline Miami too uh, no, right didn't at the end. At all. Right, yeah, which is the right decision. Um, uh, but right at the end of Hot Miami 2, there's a, like a drug trip sequence that's genuinely really cool. Mm. And this feels like that the entire time, which is really good. Mm, cool. So, yeah, seems to be doing well. It's got like, um, uh, I think it's, yeah, kind of just a little surprise hit. Feels great as well. Like really good attention to how it should feel to hit someone real fast with a katana. I saw a video and it had a shitload of screen shake oh yeah it's yeah like Like when you hit when you press attack you don't just like i i I don't i'd have to frame by frame tell you everything that's going on but what i think happens is for a single like frame the entire screen goes black except for like a single pixel perfectly straight line across the angle of attack which is then like color separated as the world fades back in so it's like you've sliced time basically right like it's it is playing up that samurai movie thing of the blade moving so fast Mm. no one ever sees it so that's kind of a nice um marriage of you know theme and and but this extra kind of like vhs video nasty kind of look it's cool yeah sounds cool it's cool shall we do some questions yeah questions yes we shall love them we shall we do um our first question is a story and it comes from Mitchell who writes, I was going to write in with this story after the discussion about the boots lunch meal deal, but decided that it wasn't relevant to the podcast. However, <laughs> now that there is a precedent, we did read an amazing meal deal life hack story last week. Uh, here goes. 
Uh, years ago, students, my friends and I were playing D&D and naturally decided to order pizza. Looking at the Pizza Places website, we found a number of value meals and combos, but also realized that they could theoretically be combined in a variety of absurd, though technically legal ways. And so it came to pass that four computer scientists slash astrophysicists in training opened up some spreadsheets and spent the better part of an hour doing only what can be described as pizza math. The sheer intensity of the mental math gymnastics was far beyond anything we'd encountered in the school system up to that point. When we arrived at the store for pickup, the cashier could only squint at the receipt for almost a minute and then shake his head in incredulity as he handed us four large three-topping pizzas for approximately the price of one medium cheese pizza, saying, I have no idea how you got away with this. (laughs) We met up again the next week and they had changed everything about their website. (laughs) Thanks for pizza, everybody. Uh, Mitchell. Excellent. Yeah, well done simply yeah. show these opportunities are out there yeah i just love the, yeah like maybe they have to employ maybe after maybe there's there was a period at which sort of game interested kind of min maxing kind of minds <laughs> were pitted against the pizza the takeaway pizza industry yeah but now they've started hiring those people into their yeah you know into their pricing systems it's like casinos you know, yeah. how, you know yeah. they get people to come and try and break casinos in order to establish their security the same has obviously happened to the meal deal clearly, sector clearly the meal yeah like just people like this i find the yeah i find pizza deals particularly mm. They're very, bizarre, very Byzantine, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they are. Like, it's probably one of the most bizarre elements of, like, day-to-day modern capitalism. <laughs> like, because, like, nothing else is... I can't think of another thing that's quite as uh, changeable and sort of mercurial as that. <laughs> like, you know, I have, you know, uh I haven't recently eaten a fair amount of takeout, and I've stopped because I don't want to die. But... um you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the, the pizza place that will simply tell me the price of the pizza and then let me purchase the pizza for that rate. Hmm. Whereas if you go into like the Domino's website at any given time, and we accept this as normal. And is it normal to be confronted with essentially an array of rules, essentially like rules modifiers for the price of everything on the menu in combination? It's practically fucking ascension. Hmm. It's like this yeah. costs this unless you already hold this card. Yeah. Like if you have the chicken combo... <laughs> <laughs> then this medium pizza is actually uh, half as many money points and but no fight points. You can like, either have three medium pizzas or two large pizzas. Yeah. Which do you get? You can have one large gluten-free pizza or two medium uh, but gluten-y pizzas. The entire thing is designed to obfuscate the fact that they just charge too much for pizza. Yeah. yeah. Like, so yeah it's like, basically a piece of bread uh, with some sort of yeah, cheap so if, shit on the top. If, if they make you work hard to get... Ten pound off a thirty pound pizza. You stop questioning why the fuck it was thirty pounds in the first yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got twenty pounds off this single pizza overpriced piece like, of bread. But the market must end up about the same because like, I can think about like there's a like independent pizza place which charges like let's say five to eight pounds for a pizza, mm. which is expensive to some extent for what you're actually buying, which is dough and tomato and mozzarella and some toppings maybe, but. You know, like everyone kind of accepts, I think, that range as like that is the cost of a medium pizza, pretty much five to ten pounds. And if you do go through the deal system, you will ultimately end up spending that pretty much. And I wonder whether or not it's necessary to do this shell game with the actual cost of bread. Because you feel good. You feel like you've, like like Tom said, you feel... Solve the mystery. Hey, I I don't feel quite as awful... (laughs) For going on the Domino's pizza. It makes me feel worse. Website. It makes me feel worse. Like if I you if I use. add chips because I want chips, then like I feel like I kind of 
didn't feel, I don't feel like I, I was coerced. Whereas if like I can get this pizza cheaper if I get it with wings, now I have wings. <laughs> like, you know, that, I don't know, that whole thing is sort of, um, uh, I find it faintly sort of, uh, like my, my agency's being co-opted and then I feel guiltier about the entire endeavor, if that makes yeah, sense. Fair enough. Like I fed myself into the pizza pipe. Yeah. It- don't ever look at the way things are sold on the internet because <laughs> it will make you depressed about the human psyche. Yeah, yeah. So if, you, if you've got a, a row of three deals, one will be really overpriced, one will be really will be underpriced but look cheap. And the third one is what they're actually trying to get you to buy, which is in between but still above what people would ordinarily pay for a thing. And it's that type of – like everything you buy is in a very carefully framed context and pizza deals are the same. So who has been gamed in this system? It's often us, <laughs> Not, <laughs> uh, apart from these intrepid astrophysicists. Yeah, we uh, need them. Who, they uh, are our beat, beat heroes. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, they are, yeah, they're, they're cracking through the system, yeah, the matrix. They are. Breaking through, meeting the architect. It's Papa John, I guess. The matrix. But, what, but then Papa boring. John takes them as his own. And yeah, exactly. They are arrayed against no, us. To the wrong pill. That is actually the plot of the matrix sequel. <laughs> like pretty much. Mm. Papa John. <laughs> there he is. And and now you've got to reboot the Matrix, but make the deals even more compelling. <laughs> that is more or less, as far as I remember, the plot of the Matrix. Close enough for jazz. Um, <laughs> um, good. Well, thank you for prompting this meditation on the evils of gamified pizza purchasing. Uh, Shane writes: There are many good games out there, and many good books, but not many good games based on good books. What writing do you feel has been neglected and deserves to be gamified or hasn't got a proper representation in the gaming medium yet? Personally, I think Ender's Game deserves a Mass Effect-style RPG with an added homeworld RTS built in for the space battle simulations. How about you, Shane? You can't make a game out of Ender's Game because it's fundamentally children beating the shit out of each other for a whole book. <laughs> like, you forget how young the kids are in that. Like They're, they're 12 and they're, they're pushed into Mortal Kombat. There's, there's a bit like where Ender just snaps a 12-year-old's arm across the back of a, a plane chair towards the start of that book <laughs> just to prove his dominance <laughs> and that he's going to be a worthy competitor for the rest of the thing. You can't do that in a video game. Yeah. You can barely I'm, do that in a movie. I'm surprised there wasn't a game made for yeah. that Ender's But what would you movie? call it? Ender's game game. <laughs> Ender's game, the game. <laughs> the game of the motion picture. <laughs> they should have called it Ender's movie, really, shouldn't they? Maybe it's because the genre in which an Ender's game game would fit would is just not popular enough for Hollywood. With children kicking the shit out think, of yeah. each other, Mass Effect. Like, it just doesn't sell Mass Effect. Mass Effect <laughs> I'd, I'd love the SEO around um, if an Ender's game game had multiple endings. The, uh, imagine the <laughs> beautiful articles you'd get to write about unlocking the multiple endings to Ender's game, the game, yeah. the movie, the game. <laughs> Ender's game, ending game. <laughs> you gave ending. Well, how's the end game of Ender's game? Ender's game, game, yeah. The end game. It was an MMO, yeah. The end game of Ender's game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they should have done it, is what we're saying. They yeah, exactly. Made, made a game around it. Um, uh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I feel like, as much as it's tempting to wander off into like, you know, sci-fi fantasy to find universes that haven't been like, um, ported across. There are plenty that surprise me. Like I'm surprised there's no wheel of time game mm. that I know about. Like it's surprising that we're getting to that point and that doesn't exist. Um, I don't know. I think I would like, um, hmm. I would like a game of the, uh, sort of like 
I don't know. Why isn't there an A and M Banks mm. sci-fi game? Thinking yeah, about like you know, I would play. I would play the Culture Stellaris game, mm. but I feel like, or like, I don't know. I keep thinking it would have to be like eighty days or something, but I would play that. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd, I'd do play, play something similar set in M. John Harrison's sci-fi as well. Um, or there has been some Rama games, but I think that you could do more Rama games. I yeah, think, imagine like a modern version, uh, a modern engine doing Rama as yeah. the cylindrical zoo, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Rama tycoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, build Rama. That's yeah. Cool. yeah. Um. Hmm. I'm trying to think. Like, I think my mind goes to sort of like hard SF because I think games are good at it. And mm. like, there are obviously, you know, I'm reading uh, The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry at the moment, which is a wonderful novel, but I have literally, I don't desire to see it made in, in game form unless it was mm. like a really delicately handled mm. character drama or something. But even then, some things are good as books and bad in other mediums. Um, but. I wonder if Foundation's going to get a game given yeah, the TV show coming out. How how the I don't know how they're going to make the TV show. Yeah, Jesus. Because like let's just we're going to ditch the entire cast every chapter and <laughs> fast forward five hundred years. Yeah. But I also have no idea how they you would make that game other than Civ, right? Like right. yeah. Likewise for like Red Mars, Blue Mars, that series. Yeah. Um. But again, like you know, there are. There's literally a game based on Mars where you build cities. But it's funny, yeah, because I, I think that sort of games have pretty much filled in all the kind of spaces that books go into. Mm. But books obviously sort of, you know, do their booky things with like real proper characters and stories and stuff. Whereas so, yeah, games those, do those Mars books, they like there's so much you couldn't do because they're based on real world existing cultures and how they will clash in the future. And games just like uh, don't want to deal with putting existing groups in games very much like mm. especially in the context of you know oh he, he, this this section has been founded by uh, islamic countries and they have cultural differences with I mean, imagine trying to tell that story in a video game and yeah like you just you wouldn't even want devs to necessarily attempt it because right it wouldn't necessarily that's the thing like well. i think the, the game i'm imagining is like i'm basically just thinking of like inkle doing it or like mm. you know fail better or somebody with that the chops that i trust with that material yeah mm-hmm. right. like to do adaptations of that kind of thing mm. But really at that point, what you're talking about is like really just interactive fiction written in the same level of quality as good SF. Yeah, right. And um, imagine what Ian McEwen would make of this. <laughs> I was just about to, <laughs> I was about to talk on Ian McEwen as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I actually, what I want to do is hurtle into the future in gravity boots or whatever the fuck it is he said. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, anyone wants... He hasn't heard the news. Ian McEwan's sci-fi novel is not a sci-fi novel. Because Ian McEwan is. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I mean, that. what's the most video game adaptable Ian McEwan novel? <laughs> uh, I, like, I don't know, we could make a game out of the start of Enduring Love and you have to run around underneath a hot air balloon with a big sheet <laughs> <laughs> and try and catch plummeting men. Um, <laughs> um Mostly it's just a, a game where terrible things happen to other people and you as a middle-class British dude have to press X to consider how this really affects you the most. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was the, um, the Ballard book that was adapted on film? Was it The Tower or something like that? It was the, uh, it's got, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, the, yes. film, the film made barely any sense, but it would be a good die-hard style scaling floor-by-floor <laughs> type game. <laughs> High rise. Yeah, high rise. Discovering new layers of, uh, 
hypocrite. You know, that does that, that would that that might work, you know, because you've got like because you've got like a sort of an action game in the sense that yeah. the floors have kind of division between them. They've got like front lines and things. Yeah, and, and you're, you're all running into the supermarket to take like as many provisions as you can, and, and the, then the go to the swimming pool and kill dogs the, the, architects, <laughs> the architects are just literally the final bosses on the top floor yeah. Like, yeah, it's a very video game structure it's yeah it really is how come they never made a Hunger Games game Not an actual official one yeah, yeah. No, it's really good speaking point. of other games you can't say mm. that's mental isn't it yeah god how expensive must have given the battle royale been. subsequently then dominated all games ever yeah, right? yeah. at what point did they decide yes we're not making a Hunger Games battle royale yeah game? I'd kind of love that because actually there's, I find the, the Hunger Games films quite visually inventive in lots of ways. Yeah. The dress sense and a lot of the outfits they, and then imagine, but imagine the cosmetics. Imagine the unlocking that shit in a yeah. video game. Why not? <laughs> Be quite nice. Incredible that that didn't happen, really. Yeah, it's true. Think about it. Yeah, it's true. And also wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably for the best. <laughs> I think that goes for all of the books that we haven't, <laughs> yeah, haven't yeah, yeah. come out as games. Yeah, you're right. I'm genuinely pleased. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't, you know, I think we're all probably guilty of kind of thinking, oh, I'm reading this thing and I, it'd be brilliant if it's a film mm. to have all the heart and life fucking bled out of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, that is the truth that. Oh. I don't know if this counts as a book thing because I'm back on the, my bullshit again trying to think about Warhammer exam- games I wished existed. <laughs> mm. But now that, uh, it's coming to an end, I'd fucking play the shit out of a, Horus Heresy era galactic strategy game. Oh yeah, mm. like that's a good one. Try and win the win the heresy, <laughs> win the heresy one way or the other. Yeah, that's cool. That's a really great, really great idea. Like you know, with the politics system and all the big characters and things, like pick a Primarch, try and win from their position. Has that's there ever been a Horus Heresy game? Uh, yeah, there's um, Talisman. Like there's the digital version of the Horus Heresy Talisman. Oh uh, yes, yeah. I think there might be a few others. Um, I think there's a VR game in the works that's set during the Heresy mm-hmm. and. Uh, Adeptus Titanicus, the game is set during the heresy as well, yeah. but it's, it's, there's nothing like as robust as those novels and, and, and the novels are what really makes that, not mm. the, the lore as it necessarily pertains to. That's true. But they're, they're all like ready to be converted into video game characters. Oh yeah. <laughs> Given oh, yeah. The, what they look like. Like, I mean, <laughs> I, I can, I can, I can fully visualize the diplomacy screen for all the different sort of, <laughs> yes, yeah. like Primark characters. That would be, um, that'd be amazing. That's yeah. Sort of, that'd be so. Very good idea. Ah, uh, yeah. How about that? <laughs> Damn. The next question uh, comes from Lucas, who writes, Hi all. I bought Heaven's Vault because I love Inkle from 80 Days and their dev talks. I almost immediately quit playing it over its infuriating intro, based on mostly fading the screen a bunch, weird animations, and worst of all, slow walking speeds with odd controls. I only didn't uninstall it because I saw that the last pod had a discussion about the game in it, and I wanted to hear if it's maybe worth sticking with. And I guess it might. Anyway, I was wondering what your favourite game with a truly terrible start is. Thanks for podding, uh, Lucas. We have a few candidates for this. I think uh, I was... Um, you. I'm going to steal a march on Alex here because you mentioned it during the break. But like, I think although it's necessary for the story, I think Metal Gear 5 Phantom Pain mm. has... If not a terrible introduction, there's such a misleading introduction yeah. about what this game is going to be. Yeah, that's true. That I think it fails. And I think this because I genuinely thought that Pip might quite enjoy Phantom Pain because mm-hmm. there's a lot of just solving problems your own way and kind of freeform open world stuff. And it's not mega violent, really. It's just, you know, 
attaching men to balloons and petting a dog, right? Mm. Like, except the beginning of that game, it just hadn't occurred to me, the beginning of that game is like 90% grotesque injections, blood screaming, and it feels like a horror game. And it's very, very railroaded scripted. Yeah, railroaded scripted horror game thing. And it's like, and then obviously flashbacks to the end of uh, Ground Zeroes, Mm. which is also nonsense if you don't know what's going on. You know what I mean? Like, you're completely at sea. Uh, and, um, I, I think it's very effective cinematically, but also like almost like a huge failure when it comes to explaining, like, did you do a lot of hovering behind it going, yeah, 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 kid. it's actually yeah, like this. this. You just got to get through this, this bit. Yeah. This is years ago. It's like, oh, how long does this last? It's like several hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a totally different game, isn't it? It's really, yeah. Strange. It's like, I was just thinking, cause yeah, it's like, I think I don't have a lot of patience now for games that are like, I will explain to you what you will actually be doing in two hours. Mm. Like, no, tell me now. I want the game that I saw on the back of the box, not not, yeah. not this. And it's not to say that you can't do a big ambitious intro, but I don't know, like Resi 2, for example, the new one was much more effective at that, like yeah, opens, yeah. then you're immediately in a little mini level and yeah. you learn the entire vocabulary of the game and then off off to the races you go. Hmm. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this? Yeah, and I think Metal Gear has, has been pretty much guilty of that throughout where, you know, and it, not as not as badly. Yeah. But like Metal Gear 3, again, like cinematically, you know, it's kind of like has nice flappy fabric in the wind. That's great. And, you know, it looks great and things. But, you know, that the, the guts of that game were fucking awesome <coughs> sort of going, delving around in the undergrowth, kind mm. of watching enemies yeah. and stuff like that. And like it took a long time to get to it. I think there's so much craft in making your first experience with the game exciting Mm. because you are worried about whether or not you're going to get it or whether or not you're going to like it or what the controls are right like entering a game has a lot of anxiety attached to it Mm. and there's a point where you feel like oh i'm in safe hands and i'm going to enjoy myself that takes a lot of skill to craft Mm. i recently finally got around to playing god of war i know it's a console game but that is a beautifully crafted yeah isn't it yeah like uh, throughout really like but obviously specifically at the start and introducing everything bit by bit and escalating and and playing with your expectations and things and it's just it's very easy to suddenly two hours have passed and you've you're on a and now you're on an adventure and it's like Mm. crafting that is not easy like making it that that easy to completely get what the game is about i think introducing a world is so difficult and i was thinking about mass effect andromeda in particular which went back to last month just in the wake of anthem and everything just to sort of reappraise it really and it's exactly how i remember it's like a perfectly decent game once you get past the sort of hump of the start of it um but the way it, it like the start is a disaster like the way it deals with like first contact with an alien species is so throwaway and just totally <laughs> do you like our jackets <laughs> it's totally <laughs> we are from up. a different galaxy they, they've, they've crash landed <laughs> on this alien place and and they've just come across like the corpses of their friends who they were in you know training with for you know a lifetime before they even came out here and they they see these aliens who shot them and there's just almost total indifference to that entire <laughs> set when they, and they're like oh what were first contact rules oh we're supposed to speak and 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 not fire first and then uh one of them stands up and the aliens just start shooting they're like well f- fuck it better get into the the the, the gun <laughs> The gun times, uh, and then they're really they're like whooping and really excited about being in the fight, but they they're in a very harrowing situation. There's like totally none of it works at all. Like it's terrible. Yeah, and, and also it means you, you can't take any of it seriously because it's, it's opened with this slapstick thing, 
and um first contact it should be like an almost awe-inspiring magical thing as it's been depicted in science fiction before it's like yeah this is a huge thing to meet a new alien species uh, and it treats them as disposable video game bad guys and squanders a massive missed, a massive opportunity i had to. i think yeah i think you're right but i think it's also partly their fault for setting it up as a big thing mm. like sci-fi like, yeah, mass effect is so star trek and now actually now star trek is becoming so mass effect yeah but that's like true. Yeah. um you know but star trek has always had you know like you think about star trek's relationship with first contact mm. where it's like technically we have this prime directive but well <laughs> i'm john you, Picard, but it's like care. yeah but like the rule of cool supersedes it every time like yeah. if what your if your plan is rad mm. then don't fucking <laughs> shoot him <laughs> go go, go for, for it. it yeah um it's it's very rarely shoot him but it'll often be like maybe just read them a bit of blake you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> like whatever <laughs> don't show them the spaceship we're going to put on a big offensive hat and go talk to them and it's because you know it's, there's an understanding in star trek that first contact is important mm. but it's always just going to be people but blue or people with a hat on or mm. people with weird hair or people with a ridge on their face or something like that like it's, you know and so andromeda sets it up so much like you're going so far mm. and you know Mass Effect, the original the original trilogy of Mass Effect games, had a reason why the majority of extant sort of spacefaring alien life was bipedal and looked a bit like a person in a suit. Even bothered to explain that to mm-hmm. some extent. And so Andromeda set it up stuff up to fail when it's the first aliens you encounter are like, yeah, we're, we're Klingons. Total goons. Just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, Total goons. Um, and, um, and it probably would have even gotten away with it better if it's like, Oh, they've got, they're bipedal. They speak language using mouths on what is recognizably a head. Hmm. They're carrying what is recognizably a gun and their camp is full of waist high cover. It's fine, guys. First contact rules are off. Yeah. This is barely first contact. Yeah. <laughs> this is our old friends. Yeah. The very Open fire. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just that the, the premise and the execution never, yeah, they don't line just up. Just don't, all. don't line up in the first few hours. Once you actually start establishing settlements and kind of going from planet to planet and you meet another alien race, that are actually far more established chill, yeah. and, and chill, yeah. And the, you know, it became a meme to ask people about their, you know, history and culture. But the trouble with Andromeda is that you can't do that for the fundamental, the main alien race in the game. That's the bag, the the, the enemies, the they're cat, just, they're, yeah. yeah, the cat are just uh, they're just nothing. <laughs> yeah, and considering they're the things you're most mostly interacting with in this amazing, supposedly amazing new galaxy, is it's just a big fundamental. It makes me. How are you supposed to buy into the rest of the universe? Yeah, know, yeah. The, the fun, this fundamental. As soon as you can start getting like the sort of ancient tech and mm. the pirates and like, you know, stuff like that, mm. and it sort of branches out and becomes so much better. But yeah. like, there's just nothing that interesting about the cat really, particularly compared to other Mass Effect villains that have always had a better reason to do whatever they're doing. Yeah. And uh, there could have at least been more of an illusion of being interesting in the first three hours. Yeah. It's more like we're talking about openings, particularly laying down the rest of the game. And because, uh, again, it's a, uh, you're on rails for that opening yeah. um andromeda with some little bits where you branch off but it's largely just you know go, go from cutscene to cutscene and shoot things um and the rest of the game is is a lot not so much like that at all really uh, yeah so yeah it's, it's just a, a misjudged opening isn't it when you consider stuff like even dragon age 2 did a better job with on with far far less kind of far fewer resources um you, you've got your family and you know I I don't want to describe what happens, but you know, yeah, yeah. There there are things that happen initially that give you reasons to be interested in the in the group that you start the game with, and that doesn't happen in Andromeda very much. Yeah, despite the family relationship stuff. Yeah, else. Yeah, again, it's just your brothers in a box. (laughs) Yeah, sorry (laughs) for fucking ages. Yeah, (laughs) and you're supposed to care about that, but man in a box, isn't it? Yeah. 
And oh no, action dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Completely yeah. predictable. Action dad's action hilarious. Dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Shame though. Uh, Shame. Yeah. But nonetheless, a great game after a certain point. Yeah, yeah, it does get good. Um, our final question comes from, uh, is it a question? Comes from Sam, who writes, Hey, not to ignite the debate again, and obviously I'm intending to, otherwise I wouldn't have sent this email. But I've noticed another weird thing Americans do with their knives and forks. <laughs> they say them in the wrong order. As I'm unemployed, recently I've spent more than a regular amount of time watching food videos on YouTube. I've noticed several times that Americans will say fork and knife instead of the acceptable and correct knife and fork. This obviously breaks the collocations we have in English, such as fish and chips, health and safety, not chips and fish, and safety and health. Please help them by declaring that they are wrong. I've attached several pieces of evidence in the form of links to YouTube videos, so I don't sound like I'm lying, which I clearly do if I am being this pedantic. Sam. Um, the mystery deepens. Yeah, the mystery deepens. It feels like I never really <laughs> truly understood G- anything. Deep it. riven divisions between our nations. There are deep rivens? Deep rivens. Deep and driven rivens. <laughs> what are you talking about, Alex? I don't know. You're not having any more red bush But it's tea. bad, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is this... I don't know. All we can do is put this out there. Is this this year-spanning podcast history <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like we're going to get to, like, Act 3 of this, and we're going to discover that... And I've been to America quite a lot in my life. And we're going to discover that we don't even have knives and forks at all. <laughs> like, it's just two paddles or something. Mm. And, you know, this entire time has just been a mass hallucination. Well, maybe we'll discover, actually, that they are using, the, you know, the uh, knives and forks in the... In the way that the British people used to, uh, but we've, we're the ones that have changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I, I think it is spreading because someone tweeted at us saying that, uh, people are using knives and forks incorrectly in Yorkshire. And if it's, if it's in Yorkshire, <laughs> then I think who knows how deep this goes. <laughs> <laughs> it could be less far or further. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, we started this 200 episodes ago as a PC games podcast, but as we regularly, bec- increasingly become a kind of cutlery and mm. meal deal conspiracy channel. <laughs> yes. uh, well, I mean, you know, we, you know, we've struggled for a long time to figure out what to do with our YouTube channel and we're trying to game those algorithms with the, yeah, exactly. this extreme content. <laughs> There's a lot of places you can go if you want PC games opinions. And I say that knowing that there's a danger that people listening to this will very much go and do that. Um, but, but really, um, the fact that we have to ask you, our listeners, to let us know anything weird that you've discovered <laughs> about transatlantic fork and knife use, <laughs> at use and usage in a linguistic sense, um, just goes to show that there's obviously an appetite from at least like 14 people <laughs> to find out more. If you say knife and fork or fork and knife, uh, based on where you live, let us know because mm. I guess you're going to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying this saga. <laughs> Good. Oh, no, yeah. Alex, you were about to say something, Mm-mm. but he wasn't. That's all of the, uh, the emails and that we've got time to read out tonight. You'd be glad to hear. If you would like <laughs> to send us an email or a tweet, for next week, you can do so by emailing us at questionsandcreatingcrowbar.com or tweeting us at creatingcrowbar. You can find our community on Discord, link in the show notes, and on our website at creatingcrowbar.com. And we have a YouTube channel, which will soon become the, uh, you know, cutlery truther uh, hub for uh, this our little corner of the internet. Nonetheless, you can find it at creatingcrowbar.com. Uh, no, fuck, that's wrong. YouTube.com forward slash creatingcrowbar. 
doing so well. Thank you as ever to our Patreon backers for their intrepid support of our investigative work into how forks do or whatever. Um, more about the Patreon. Forks and their doings. Yeah, the doings of these forks. Uh, a full length. Actually, yes. Uh, at a certain point in the Patreon, we won't tell you when because you might go for it. We'll produce a for- full length movie about the doings of these forks. Um, uh, also. That, oh, <laughs> that's patreon.com forward slash create and crow, but you can derive a lot of these URLs yourself, to be honest, at this point. <laughs> this point. Yeah. Uh, is the doing things an awesome well? It is an awesome well. well I mentioned it in the last it? podcast, but uh, it's, it's, it's my favorite. It's my favorite thing. It rang a bell. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's wonderful. I might repost that entire quote. Um, again, if you would like to follow us on Twitter as individuals, I'm on Twitter at C Thurston. That's C T H U R S T E N. I, Tom Senior, am at PCG Ludo, which is L U D O. And I, Alex R, am at Alex R. <laughs> Alex. Oh, Alex. Oh, Alex. Oh, she's really getting to me. <laughs> yeah. I am on the Twitter at rotational R O T A T A That, that sigh at the end. Is, <laughs> just put, plop in whatever vowels you think are appropriate. <laughs> You'll find them. <laughs> Uh oh, Alex has failed the quick time event where he spells his own Twitter name. Oh. <laughs> I guess that's it then, isn't it? I guess it is. Uh, thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening, everybody. everybody.